We'll be on page 12 and 13, pages 12 and 13 in just a bit. Here are some things that are coming up. Tonight is the first uh, Sunday of the month, and on the first and third Sundays of the month, we have our home groups, community groups, so those will be meeting tonight. And then two weeks from yesterday on the 16th at 1.30 in the afternoon, 1.30 to 3 at the Brownstown Sports Center, formerly known as the Icebox on Telegraph, just north of West, we will have family ice skating. So that's for all ages, and there's no cost to the skating, $3 if you need to uh, rent skates. So we look forward to a good time for that. And then the only other thing I want to make mention of is baptism at the end of this month. So four weeks from today is our next baptism. And if you've never been baptized, then Jesus commands that you be baptized. So that's no small matter to disregard a command of the, the Lord himself. Uh, but he requires all of his followers to be baptized. That means to be immersed in water so that you symbolize the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. If that's never happened with you, then you've never been baptized as the Bible describes. We try to make it easy for you uh, to be a candidate for baptism by providing a one-page application. That one-page application can be obtained at the desk that's out in the lobby, the information center. Tell them you want the baptism application. They'll give that to you. You can fill that out, turn it back into them. They'll get it to me, and then we'll go from there. All right, we are a little over midway now uh, in our series from self-help to God's help. This was to be a nine-week series, but I had to miss one week because of the health issue, so that means we have eight weeks to uh, get through it. So we have three more. We've completed five, and we only have three more. We have today and the next two Sundays uh, in order to make some tracks to, to get through this material. But from self-help to God's help, uh, as I've been saying throughout this series, is something that we want to pursue because God is in the change business. God does not want any of his people to remain next week where they are this week in their spiritual growth. God's design for us is to continually, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, be growing in him. And yet, I think many of us uh, have not been raised, not been in church where that's been emphasized And partly as a result of that, we get stagnant in our Christian walk. We have uh, stubborn habits, sin habits that plague us over many years. And we don't think it's strange that those things uh, don't don't change and don't fade, fade away. But really, we need an environment. We need a culture in the church in which it is strange. It should be strange for us. To think about not changing, not becoming more like Jesus on a regular basis. That should be strange to us. And if I'm still doing the same stuff this year that I was doing last year or five years ago, then somehow I have truncated or have I disabled somehow the, the change process that God gives us in Scripture. So because God wants to see that regular change going on in our lives, we've devoted this series to looking at what the Bible says about what the struggles are and where they, from where they come, and then what his solution for those is. So on page 12, and throughout these notes that you have in front of you, you've seen this chart. And we have the chart in the notes, but I think we have it on the screen as well. And you see there that the top portion is your situation. And in this illustration, 
the idea is that life is a wilderness, and you and I are journeying through this, uh, this wilderness. And what kind of life we're going to have in that wilderness is going to depend on how we deal with the heat that is our situation, our circumstance. And we've seen that God is sovereign. God is in control of those circumstances. So it is, it is not the case that we need different circumstances in order to be like Jesus. It is the case that a sovereign God has placed us in our circumstances to be like Jesus in that situation. So what we too often do is say, if I'm going to be like Jesus, I got to get rid of this person or this circumstance. And God teaches in scripture that he places us in those circumstances in order to become like Jesus in the midst of the heat, in the midst of the situation. So it is not the case that you will, you've heard me say this before, you will be able to do what the Allman Brothers band tried to do when they said, Lord, I was born a rambling man. And I'm just trying to make a living and doing the best I can. And when it's time for leaving, I hope you'll understand that I was born a rambling man. Okay, you, you see the idea of what they're saying is, you know, I, mean, I haven't had a lot of hard knocks. In fact, if you listen to that, that song, you go through the lyrics, I was born in the back of a Greyhound bus going down highway, whatever number it is. And so it's just going, you know, this is me and this is my life and these are all the circumstances and this is how difficult it's been. And so I've just been a rambling man my whole life. I started as a rambling man. I was born as a rambling boy and now I'm a rambling man and I'm going to die as a rambling man. And when I stand before you, I hope you'll understand that. And God's going to say, you know, I knew that. I knew that. As a matter of fact, I knew where you were going to be born. I knew to whom you were going to be born. I knew all of the circumstances that in which I would place you. I knew every last one of them. And every last one of them, your duty was to respond to the circumstance in a godly way. So that my purpose could be achieved in you. Namely, for you to become conform to the image of Christ so that when I look at you, I see myself in character. I see someone who thinks and talks and acts like I do. That's what I made you to be in my image. That's what I'm remaking you to be. And the heat is part of that process. And I have given you your circumstances. So one of the first things we have got to do, friends, if we're going to be engaged profitably in this change process is to lose the idea that the problem is the situation. So we've seen that it's not the heat. Everybody's got it. What's yours? Yours is different than mine. We all have different circumstances. The problem comes in in how I react to those circumstances. And that's the next part of the chart, the right side of the page, page number 12. A sinful response to my circumstances produces a thorn bush kind of life, this cactus looking kind of life that you see on the screen and on the right side of the page. Sinful responses make a bad situation worse because it's more heat. Now let's think about it. If the idea is life is you're journeying in a wilderness, And in the midst of that journey, you've got heat bearing down upon you. If you react to your particular heat 
in a sinful way, what you're doing in effect is adding more fuel to that heat, more fuel to that fire, more heat to the heat. So that the ground becomes all the more parched. And your life produces that kind of stuff. So the issue is, how do I respond? And if I have sinful responses, it makes a bad situation. Worse, because it's in effect throwing more heat onto the heat. So it doesn't get better. In fact, it gets, in fact, it gets worse. On the other hand, as we're going to see in the remaining couple of weeks, godly responses are like pouring water over the otherwise parched ground that the heat can produce. And as a result of that, if you look on the left side of the page, you have a different kind of life that comes out of that. You have a a fruit-bearing life rather than a thorn bush kind of life. Now, what determines which response I'm going to I'm going to have? What's the root of this fruit or thorn or thorns that I produce. Look down at the bottom. You can see it at the bottom on the screen. You can see it at the bottom on the page. You see at the root of that thorn bush is a heart. And you see it's a negative heart. A sinful heart. That in turn is what's causing us to react to the situations the way we do. On the other hand, on the other side of the page, the left side of the page, you see a heart indeed, but this is a positive heart. This is a heart attuned to Christ. This is a heart that's reacting in ways that God has designed so that we will profit from the the situation. So the heart is key. What's going on in my heart? What do I want? What do I desire? What do I demand? What must I have? And in the absence of having that thing, as we saw a few weeks ago, very often a good thing, but a good thing that's become an ultimate thing. Remember I said that? And a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing is an idolatrous thing, is a bad thing. But that's all rooted in the heart. So the heart must be examined. My heart must be examined. Your heart must be examined. How can we do that? I made this promise to you last week that we have this wonderful article by a guy named David Paulison, and everything David Paulison writes is golden and all of that. And I got you all excited about it, and a bunch of you ran to the desk out in the lobby where I said there would be 40 copies of that, and then I was rushed by people saying, there are no copies. And, and my response was, I did that on purpose because that's just more heat, and I wanted to see how you would respond. Okay. And that's all a big fat lie. I really thought there would be 40 copies, but we had a copier malfunction. However, we we have some out there now. I know some of you uh, have gotten those, and if you want them, there are some out there while supplies last. So so we have the x-ray questions. David Paulison has written this very helpful article, and he's got a series of, of questions. If you look it up on the Internet, sometimes there are 34, but they actually have in this one rounded it out to 35. There are 35 questions there. Um, and 35 questions to help you, help me analyze what's going on in our hearts, what's motivating us so that we respond in thornbush ways or in, in fruit-bearing ways. So what we need to do is not look first to change the situation but rather to see our experience of the situation changed. 
You see, when you respond in a godly way, as we're going to see, it doesn't necessarily change the situation. Your heat is still the same. But your experience of that heat, your experience of that situation, changes radically. And that's what produces the fruit-bearing life as opposed to the thornbush life. That's pretty good. You guys are on it. I say fruit, there it shows up. I'm just going to throw those out there and see how fast you guys can do it, okay? So some of you have heard me say this in the, in the past. Uh, when I was a kid in Sunday school in my uh, church that I grew up in, uh, there was, in one of my Sunday school classes, there was a poster on the wall. And I can still see it in my mind's eye. It was designed in the same design as the then-current Coca-Cola uh, advertising campaign. And Coke over the years has had a bunch of it's the real thing, that kind of stuff. But one of them was years ago, things go better with Coke. Things go better with Coke. Now, this was before the cocaine epidemic. So. <laughs> but things go better with Coke. And... There was, and it was, you know, exactly the same way, same design. But instead of saying things go better with Coke, it was things go better with Jesus. And, you know, if you think about that the wrong way, then you can go in the wrong direction with that. If you think, as many people do, if I have Jesus, things get better, you'll be sorely disappointed. Because very often as a Christian... Now you're living in a fallen world as a minority. God's people have always been a minority. You're aware of that, right? So you think and you, and you talk and you act and you're, you march to the beat of a different drummer if you're a Christian. So you're in the minority. That being the case, then you've got, you're outnumbered. You're outnumbered with the world around you. And that being the case, you're trying to go one direction against the grain of what the culture is doing, against the grain of what the world is doing, and that's going to be hard very often. So your life, in fact, may well be more difficult after you become a Christian. Things so you could have that poster and you could accurately say, things got lousy with Jesus. Things got worse. But the way you're supposed to read it is not that the things got better, but that those things go better with Jesus. Your experience of those things is radically changed. But that only happens if our hearts respond in ways that produce this fruit rather than produce the thorn bush. So now the question for today is this. Can you do this? I mean, do you have what it takes for this to happen? I mean, it all sounds good, Pastor. And I would love to see these habits and responses that I've had for a lot of years change. But it's, you know, I am so... We've got people in here from young adult. We've got 19-year-olds in here. We've got people in their 80s in here. I mean, literally, in this room, we've got from 19 to 80. And everything in between. And so you plug your uh, plug your age in, and you say, "I'm 50, I'm 45, you know, I'm 25, and this is the way I am, and this is just how I am." And it's been this way for a, a good while, and I've gone through things, and I've repented, and I've tried to 
to change, but it hasn't changed. And so the question is, do you have what it takes to change? And that's what this lesson and next week are about. The resources that God has given you in order to in order to change. And so, as you might expect, the answer to that for a Christian, do I have what it takes in order to respond differently to the heat in my life? The answer to that is yes, but let's explore that a bit. What do I have? What do you have that allows you to respond differently to your circumstances so that you produce different fruit? The first thing that you you have is a new heart. I mean, down at the bottom is the heart, right? And the first thing you've got to have is indeed a new heart. That new heart comes when you are regenerated. That's the fancy term for being made alive spiritually. When you're made alive spiritually, now your heart becomes attuned to different things and more important to a different person, namely the Lord. So if you've come to Christ, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, and that's that's what born again means. To be born from above is actually what it means. So yes, it's being born a second time, but that's not the emphasis. It's actually being spiritually reborn from above. And that spiritual rebirth is what gives you this new heart. The very first thing is I have to have come to Christ so that I have this new heart. And if I have this new heart, if I've come to Christ, then I have the ability uh, to to respond in, in better ways and produce different fruit. Now, it's important for you to know that, for me to know that, because every person lives with a sense of potential or a lack of a sense of potential. They either think they can do it or they think they can't. Those of you that have had children, if you can remember what it was like when they were trying to learn to walk, and you just think back if you had children, and then they're crawling along, and then they're crawling along on the, they got the legs and the arm, the knees and the elbows, and they're shuffling along. But then, you know, they want to, they want to get up, and they're seeing other stuff that they want to grab. And so they're trying to make that, trying to make that happen. And so they pull up on something. You know, the side of a chair, the side of a sofa or something, and they try to pull up on that. But, you know, they can't quite get it for a while. But then finally they get it. The legs are getting stronger. The arms are getting stronger. They pull, they pull it up. And now if they're going to walk, depends on whether or not they think they've got the ability to do this. You know, they're kind of hanging on. They're wobbling a little bit. You're about a foot away going. You want them to take that, that step. But, you know, they're kind of scared to do it. And then finally they start to do it. They fall down, right? You're encouraging them. You're telling them that they can, they can do it. Come on, you, you can do it. And then over time, they start to do that. And they make that one-foot walk. And then they make a one-yard walk. And then they start walking, and then they start walking all over you <laughs> eventually. <laughs> no, we've, we've had a great experience with our kids. And, and, but all of that depended on them understanding that they had the potential to do that. And you aided them in telling them that they had the potential to do that. Children do that. Adults measure their potential as well. When your boss, your coach, your teacher gives you a new assignment... Inside you, you're assessing whether or not you really have the ability to do this. 
As you go to the home improvement store, you're asking yourself, can I really get this repair job done? I, I already know the answer to that for myself, so I don't even make the trip to the repair store. I had a handyman over at my house on Friday. Um, when you're in the last months of pregnancy, you start wondering whether you're going to be the right kind of mother. Do I have the ability to really do this? You prepare to ask your girlfriend to be your wife. Do I have what it takes to be a good husband? That kind of question, do I have what it takes, is something that we ask over and over again. And as you, now I want you to think about this, all of us, as you think about your life now with all of its blessings but also all of its difficulties, you're assessing whether or not you have the potential to succeed in all of that stuff. So what things lead you to say, I'm doomed to failure, there's no way I'll be able to pull this off? Or what leads you to say, I think I'm ready to do what I've been assigned to do? What do you use to measure your potential? Do you say, well, I came from a good family and I had good role models? I've gotten a good solid education. I have the talents necessary for the task. I've learned from my experience. My past successes indicate that I'm going to be successful again. Well, that's all good. And the sovereign God has given you all of those things, if you have those. And so they are all things uh, that are part of your profile But they still miss the core of what you need. And the core of what you need is this regenerated heart and the indwelling Lord Jesus Christ that you get at the moment you come to him in salvation. At the moment of regeneration, not only does he change your heart, but he doesn't change your heart and then walk away. But he changes your heart and now you have a different relationship to God because of the indwelling Christ. Theologians use that term, uh, the indwelling of the of the Holy Spirit. We talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the indwelling of the presence of of Christ. Romans chapter eight, uh, verses eight and nine speak of the spirit, the Holy Spirit as the spirit of Christ. And so you have Christ with you. Now, we use that word indwelling, and so it sounds like he's got like a compartment inside your body. But remember, God is omnipresent. That means he is present everywhere. So when we talk about indwelling, it doesn't mean he has a piece of real estate in your body. No. That's what a lot of people think when uh, Kim's niece, uh, Katie was little. How old was she when she was up one night? Four? She's four. She's spending the night with us. She's in our bed. We're dead. We want to go to sleep. And she wants to chatter. And she's just chattering away. Katie's just chattering away. And I go, you know, Katie, you're a chatterbox. And she goes, my mom's a chatterbox. <laughs> okay. And then she says, and she does it. She smacked her lips too. She goes, How does Jesus come into your heart? Well, I'm tired, but I'm a pastor, so I'm supposed to. (laughs) All right, you got me now. How does Jesus come into your heart? And then she does this. Kim and I will never forget it. She says, you know what I think? I think he makes himself, and she does this with her hands. I think he makes himself real little, and he comes inside you. So we had a little chat about the real little Jesus. And the, 
indwelling of the Holy Spirit and all that at midnight. But lots of people think that, that the indwelling of the Spirit means he's taking up some real estate in your... But when we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about, hear this, we're not talking about a spatial reality. We're talking about a relational reality. He has a new relationship to you. He has a relationship to you as God's child that he does not have with those who are not his children. And so you have Romans chapter chapter 8, as I said, verses, verses 8 and 9 that speak of that, the Spirit of Christ. But then all of this flows from the work of Christ on the cross and then us coming to him and what he has done in his finished work on the cross, giving us then his Holy Spirit and continuing his His work, work in us. And you see that on page 13. If you turn to page 13, we have for you Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, in this verse in Galatians chapter 2, Paul who wrote, it's not focusing on the fact that the cross enables me to be accepted by God and adopted through his family, although that's very important. But that's not what he's talking about here. Here he wants us to see that the new life we have in Christ is through the gift of the Spirit. It's it's important to recognize this because many believers tend to think of the cross only in terms of a doorway into our relationship with God. But Paul's saying that the cross is that doorway, but it's more than that. Notice that he focuses not on eternity in this verse, Yes, the cross guarantees that we'll have eternity free of sin and suffering, and we all look forward to that. But again, many of us tend to think of the cross as an escape route from eternal punishment into eternal paradise. Paul would agree with that, but it's more. So what is the focus? He wants us to know that the cross defines our identity and potential, not for the future, but right here and now, because we're alive in Christ. We have the very Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ living in us. Again, Romans 8, 8, 9, and, and 10. So here are, and you've got space to write these down if you, if you care to. Here are three truths coming out of this verse that will help us to understand, recognize that we have the ability, the God-given ability to respond differently because of the living Spirit of Christ in us. The first is this. It's the fact of our redemption. The fact of our redemption. The fact of our redemption. You see that in, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. So he's just stating the fact. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer, and I no longer live. Now what's, let's unpack that a little bit. What's that mean? So it's saying something more than that Christ was crucified for him or that the cross of Christ benefits him. He's saying that when Christ was crucified, now hear this, he, Paul, was crucified as well. When Jesus died physically, his people died spiritually. I have been crucified 
with Christ. Now, from birth, each of us is born into this world at conception and then birth and then our lives were under the control and the dominion of sin. Christ has defeated the dominion of sin in our lives now. Pastor Larry read from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 this morning. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, a marvelous passage. that says he forgave us all our sins, that he nailed those sins to the cross. But then it says that he defeated his enemies, making, I'm quoting now, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. And that making a public spectacle of them is a military phrase. It was used in that day to describe a vanquished army being paraded before the victorious people to show that they had been completely defeated. Christ made a public display on the cross. His cross, they thought, was a defeat. In fact, it was the greatest victory victory ever. And so we were under the control and the dominion of sin, but because of Christ's victory on the cross, and because we died with him spiritually, we are no longer under the dominion of sin. That's why Paul then can go on to say, I no longer live. He's saying that the changes inside him are so basic to who he is as a human being, that's as if he no longer lives. He's still Paul, but because of his faith in Christ, he's a Paul who's utterly different at his core. Now, friends, when you grasp the fundamental nature of that change within you as a believer, then you begin to grasp your potential for changing the indwelling sin, the continuing vestige of sin in your life. You're not the same person that you were. You've been forever changed. You no longer live under the weight of the law or the dominion of sin. Christ's death fulfilled the law's requirements, and it broke the power of sin. So, ask yourself this. Do I view myself with this kind of potential for a new life in Christ? That's what the Bible says you have. If you belong to Christ, you've been crucified spiritually. The power of sin has been killed. And it's Christ who lives in you. So that's the second truth. The first one is the fact of our redemption. And then the second one is the reality of Christ's work. The reality of Christ's work. Christ lives in me. So here's the gospel, uh, the good news of our potential. It was necessary for each of us to die with Christ so that he could live forever in our hearts. The old sinful nature has died. But hear this, it's not been replaced with a better me. What's it been replaced with? Now let me ask it better. Who's it been replaced with? Christ. You see, that's what we think. You know, we sometimes think that the old is, is gone and the new that has come is a new and improved version of me. No. The Bible is saying it's Christ who lives who lives in me. The replacement is Christ. My heart is new because Christ lives there. My heart's alive because Christ lives there to give it life. My heart can respond to life in new ways because it's no longer dominated by sin, but liberated by the gracious rule of Christ. That's why I have the potential for amazing change and growth in my heart and life. So the first is the fact of our redemption. The second is the reality of Christ's presence. And then thirdly, this verse gives you the results for daily life. The results for daily life. 
Again, on page 13, Galatians 2.20, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul drives home the present benefits of Christ living in our hearts. When we live, we live by a new principle, not the old principle of sin and death, but the new principle of the power and grace of Christ who now has this special relationship with us. And here's what he means when he says, I live by faith in the Son of God. We no longer live based on our assessment of what we possess in strength, in character, in wisdom, whether it's from our family, from our education, from our experience. We base our lives on the fact that because Jesus lives in us, we can do what is right in our desires, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, no matter what specific blessings or sufferings we face. Our potential is in Christ. All right. Thanks be to God. What's that practically mean? It means a Christian mom who speaks with patience when she once would have spoken in anger. She's experiencing the reality of Christ living in her. The Christian husband who comes home tired from work but still serves his wife is living in the power of the indwelling Christ. The friend who chooses to overlook minor offenses and stay in friendship that she would have once forsaken is choosing to live on the basis of Christ within me kind of faith. So what Paul's laying out here in Galatians 2.20 is intensely practical. Your life looks different if you live in light of that. My potential is in Christ. Now, here are some implications of that. Those three truths, here's three implications of those. This is what your life is going to look like if you measure your potential based on the fact that you're united with Christ. The first one is this. You will live with personal integrity. You'll live with personal integrity. What I mean by that is that you will live in a way that is honest about yourself. You'll stop hiding. You're able now to stop hiding. Christ gives you the power to do that. The gospel gives you the power to do that. Because Christ has taken away all of your sin. He's paid for all of your sin. Again, Colossians 2.13. He has forgiven us all our sin, past, present, and future. That should have implications for now the way you see yourself. You see, friends, because of that, you can live with this personal integrity. You can be honest about your, your issues and your struggles. You can be honest because in the gospel, you're no longer on the performance treadmill. You know what I mean by that? That's what many Christians are on, man. They are just like, they are just like hamsters on a wheel. And they keep doing stuff and they try to keep doing stuff and they try to get better and they're trying to get better and they try to serve more and they try to, you know, over and over again. And I'll read the Bible more and I'll pray. And they just keep doing this. And there's worn out. You know, it was Jesus who, in Matthew chapter 11, said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. But you see a lot of Christians who ain't resting. They are tuckered out, man. They're about ready to keel over because they're on that hamster wheel. 
You're on the performance treadmill, but in the gospel, you're no longer on the performance treadmill because, as Tim Keller has said, I don't know if it's original with him, but it's only in the gospel that you get the verdict before the performance. See, in everything else, you get the verdict after the performance. You get the verdict after you do all the stuff. But in the gospel, in the good news, you get the verdict before you've done anything. Because Jesus did it. And he's given that to you. And so now, because I have that, now I have this freedom before God. I'm his child, not because of what I've done or what I'm doing, but because of what Christ has done. Now I can be honest. I can be honest about my struggles, honest about my failings. So you'll live with personal integrity. Second, you'll have a climate of grace in your relationships. Because if this is the way you view yourself now, if this is the reality of of who you are, it's Christ living in me and he has done the work and I'm not on the treadmill and all of that. If that's the case, now you'll forgive as you've been forgiven. You're somebody who will be ready to forgive. It will transform your relationships. You'll not only be willing to forgive, you'll be ready to ask for forgiveness. You now have the freedom to serve and give in tangible ways for other people. You'll be able to persevere even when you're tempted to quit. Endurance, forbearance, long-suffering, patience. They're all on every biblical list of the character traits of a new heart. They all involve doing what's right even when the heat remains. But it's Christ living in you that enables you to do that. And then third, you'll live with personal integrity. You'll have a climate of grace in your personal relationships. And then thirdly, you'll act with Courageous grace and constructive truth. Courageous grace and constructive truth. Now, what's that mean? It means that in my relationships, in the heat of of my life, including the heat of personal relationships, then I'll have courageous grace. I'll be someone who extends grace to people. But I'll also engage in constructive truth. Now, how does the gospel help me do that? The gospel helps me do that. Please follow this in the few minutes we have left. The gospel helps me do this because I have in the gospel everything I need in Jesus. And that then in turn affects my relationships. I'll explain how in a minute. But before I do, let me just ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that I have everything I need in Jesus? Because, honestly, friends, a lot of times we don't. We know that's the right answer, but a lot of times we don't. Remember in uh, Luke chapter 10, pretty sure, Luke 10, and you've got uh, Lazarus. Lazarus has died. No, I take that back. Jesus is, before Lazarus has died, Jesus is visiting Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. But you remember he goes to their house and he's their guest and Mary's going crazy 
And she's getting all the stuff ready and all that. And uh, no, Martha's going crazy. <laughs> Martha's going crazy. And Martha's getting everything set up. And Mary's just, you know, talking to Jesus. And she's at Jesus' feet and she's learning from Jesus. And Martha is working her backside off. And she's ticked at Mary. And not only is she ticked at Mary, she's ticked at Jesus. She says, Jesus, you know, in effect, tell her to, to help. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. And uh, you remember when your mom used your middle name when you were... <laughs> you're in big trouble. When Jesus says your name twice, you're in a world of hurt, okay? You did something wrong. Martha, Martha. And Jesus says to her, there is, as a quote now, there is one thing needful. And Mary has chosen the better. And that one thing needful is me. All the other stuff, everything else going in your life is secondary and and not even close to Jesus. Do you believe that you have everything you need in Jesus? If you do, it means you can be honest with people. Here's why. Because you now can, you can have that constructive truth in your relationships because you no longer need those people as much as you love them. To put it another way, you love them more than you need them. So you can tell the truth to them. Why can I say, I don't, and it sounds bad, but guess what? I don't need y'all. I love y'all. And you don't need me either. Ultimately, who do you need? We need Jesus. And if I've got that and I'm secure in that, now I don't have to play to the crowd. Now I don't have to withhold truth that would be helpful to other people. Now I can speak courageous grace and constructive truth in the lives of others. The cross has a transformative effect Not only for eternity, but for this week, but for Monday, for here and now. Changes the way we view ourselves. Changes the way we view other people. Comes out in the way our relationships take place. And so we respond now differently. And because we respond differently, instead of the thorn bush, now we're starting to see fruit on the trees of our tree of our life. We'll pick up there next week. Think about those six things that we gave you, the three truths and the three implications. Try to put those into practice this week, and then we'll continue next week looking at the effect of the cross. And there you go. (laughs) You know, here's the thing. So we we got our artists going at that back in the booth, which means you didn't hear a word I said after that, did I? Right? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. Jesus is central to that good news. Without God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's all bad news. But because of him, we have life. We have spiritual life. We have the guarantee of eternal life with you. But we have the guarantee of new life right now. And so, Father, we thank you for having begun this new life in us 
Because of the Lord Jesus, we thank you for his work on the cross. We thank you for his perfect life. We thank you that God the Holy Spirit moved upon our hearts at a point in time and made us alive to see our need to receive the benefits of the life and death of Jesus. But then you don't leave us there. We have the indwelling Christ in special relationship to us every moment of every day, empowering us to do what is right. We thank you, Lord, for the profound implications that then come out of that. May we put those, every one of us, myself, all of my brothers and sisters here, may we put those implications of the gospel into practice in our lives this coming week. Lord, may we see new and surprising fruit then. Instead of thornbush lives, we start to see that we're calmer, that we're more peaceful, that we're more loving, that we're more gracious, that we're willing to speak truth, but to do it in to do it in love for the benefit of others because we don't need them as much as we love them. We love them more than we need them. And that's all because we have everything we need in the Lord Jesus. Help us to live that out this week. Lord, may we see fruit in our lives. May that in turn then motivate us, encourage us to continue moving forward in that potential that we have because of Christ in us. And we ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.